Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Keeping Pace in Lung Cancer, Clinical Case Challenges in NSCLC, is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this lung cancer activity, which is part of the Keeping Pace in Lung Cancer series. This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Mark Sosinski. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Levy. So let's get started, Ben. We've now incorporated immunotherapy into the treatment algorithm for non-small cell lung cancer. This has given us an additional layer of complexity when selecting the appropriate treatment option in the first-line setting. So let's try to untangle some of the data. I'll let you walk us through the first case. Thanks, Mark. Um, I hope this case can underscore and highlight some of the challenges that we have with therapy selection in the treatment-naive setting for patients with with advanced lung cancer. So this is a 71-year-old female. She's a former smoker, has a 40-pack year history. She quit one year prior to the presentation. Her past medical history is only significant for hypertension. And she presented in 2018 complaining of a worsening cough, chest heaviness, and exertional dyspnea. Her primary care physician ordered a chest x-ray that was followed by a CAT scan. And that CAT scan unfortunately revealed bilateral lung nodules. She went on to have a CT guided biopsy that demonstrated or was consistent with a TTF1 positive adenocarcinoma. Importantly, her PDL1 was 60% and her genetic interrogation did not reveal any actionable mutation outside of a KRAS SCK11 mutation. She had full staging with both a PET scan and a brain MRI, and her MRI of the brain was negative, but the PET scan did unfortunately show bony lesions as well as liver lesions. So the patient came to me for a discussion of therapy selection. So Dr. Sosinski, how would you approach selecting the appropriate optimal first-line treatment for a patient like this? Well, in a patient with greater than 50% PDL1 expression, it opens up the option of immunomonotherapy. We know we have three options. Pembrolizumab was the first, atezolizumab the second, and now semiplumab most recently all have data compared to platinum-based chemotherapy that they are superior in this subset of patients. And there's also a suggestion from the semiplumab uh, trial that the higher the PDL1 expression, the greater the benefit is relative to platinum-based chemotherapy. Those patients with 90 to 100% PDL1 expression versus those with 50 to 60%. In these patients, if they are relatively asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic and don't have an overwhelming tumor burden, I think immunomonotherapy is typically my choice. It does offer superior response rates. It does offer better overall survival and tolerability for these patients. So it's a very attractive option in these greater than 50%. I have evolved into thinking that the higher the PDL1 expression is, the more likely I am to use immunomonotherapy. But Ben, you and I both know that there are patients in this subset of a greater than 50% that may not be best served by immunomonotherapy. Your comments on this? Such an important point because I think treatment selections are nuanced here and not only have to factor in the PDL1, but have to look at patient symptom burden, potential performance status 
on whether or not single agent immunotherapy is going to be the optimal regimen. The higher the PDL1 expression, the more likely they are to respond to immunotherapy. PDL1 is a continuous variable. That said, I think there are patients in which we need to consider combination strategies. So for a patient with heavy disease burden, patients who are you know, reasonably fit, and patients who are symptomatic. That would be, I think, an opportunity to consider combination strategies in the greater than 50%. What are those combination strategies? Well, clearly chemo IO is one, and Keynote 189 certainly is an option for patients like this with a PDL one greater than 50 who may have heavy disease burden. So carboplatin, pimetrexid, pimbrolozumab. We've got new regimens. We've got Checkmate 227, which is a dual checkpoint blockade with nivolumab plus ipilimumab. We've got Checkmate 9LA, which is nivolumab plus ipilimumab plus two cycles of platinum chemotherapy. We have the Empower 150 regimen with carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, atezolizumab. That may also be a potential option. We've got subset analysis from that data set, judging patients with liver mets may do well. So I think all of these options are reasonable. Certainly a shared decision needs to happen with the patient on this because the greater than 50%, yes, you can use single agent IO, but we also have combination approaches that we can also use. And that can sometimes be a nuanced treatment decision that needs to sometimes involve the patient. I would agree. So let's transition again, as we've mentioned, it's only a minority of patients that have high PDL1 expression. Uh, what about those patients that are in the one to 49%? Do you have a second case to discuss? I agree. I think the greater than 50, we've got a lot of options. We certainly have a lot of options in the less than 50 or the one to 49. So this is a 58-year-old male. He's a current smoker. He's got a 30-pack year history, but he quit upon the diagnosis of his lung cancer. He's a relatively healthy guy. He has no real comorbidities. And he's been newly diagnosed with stage four lung cancer with brain metastases. He has a biopsy and the PDL1 expression is 10%. And his genetic interrogation is unrevealing for any actionable mutations. So we have a patient who's relatively fit with brain mets. PDL1 is 10%. Mark, how do you talk about treatment selections for these patients? We just had a very nice discussion about the greater than 50%. The major difference to me in the 1% to 49% is that knocks out, in my opinion, any option for immunomonotherapy. We had a very nice presentation of an FDA analysis of looking at this 1% to 49% comparing immunomonotherapy with chemo IO strategies, and clearly immunomonotherapy was inferior to the use of chemo plus IO specifically in this population. Other than that, Ben, I think the discussion that you had before with regard to the multiple options apply to this patient also. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think, again, competing strategies here, treatment decisions need to be nuanced. We've got a lot of options on the table. We've got Keynote 189 with carbopem pembrolizumab. We've got Checkmate 227 with Nevo Ipi. We've got you know, Checkmate 9LA. As you mentioned, Mark, Empower 150 for BEV-eligible patients is an option. We've got Atizo plus carboplatin, NAB paclitaxel that's approved. So we've got a, a lot of different options. I can say for most of my patients with adenocarcinoma, as I mentioned in the last case, I tend to use carboplatin, pemetrexid, pembrolizumab. 
but I am starting to look at the dual checkpoint blockade, how it's used, how it's leveraged, either alone or in combination with platinum Dublin. And I would say again, for those patients with liver meds who are BEV eligible, I think the Empower 150 regimen is certainly one to consider. So it's getting complicated out there. <laughs> That's good for patients. And the more options we have, this generates a lot of confusion, but that confusion translates into better outcomes for our patients. Yeah, I would agree. It allows you to a certain extent to tailor treatment once you nuance the patient. One of the frustrating things is the progression of disease. This is a challenging situation, both for us as well as the patient. What are your thoughts about transitioning to second-line therapy after, say, chemo IO in the first-line setting? Yeah, I think this is one of the more difficult scenarios we face in our clinic every day. I mean, we have all these great frontline options. The question is, if and when there's disease progression, what do we do? I think, importantly, we have to advocate for clinical trials in this space. And there's just a lot of clinical trials out there. And yes, it's like throwing spaghetti on a wall and seeing what sticks. Some of these trials look promising, some of them don't. But we try to screen patients for clinical trials, given the lack of evidence we have as to what to do in this setting. Now, I would say for patients off of trial, I tend to default to a taxane. And if patients have no contraindications, I will consider adding remucirumab to docetaxel. And there may need to be some dose modifications to that as it relates to both not only the dose, but the schedule of how to deliver it. But that would be my default chemotherapy based on the REVEL trial. Although the REVEL trial did not allow prior chemo IO, this was done before chemo IO was first line. I think there are other options. Medicine as an art, not a science, but certainly gemcitabine is an option too for those patients who may have neuropathies or can't tolerate docetaxel remucirumab. I'll tell you what I don't do, which I think is also important, which is that I don't sequence to another immunotherapy. If patients are receiving platinum pemetrexid with pembrolizumab and have disease progression, I'm not moving on to atezolizumab. I'm not moving on to dual checkpoint blockade. I see that being done. I just don't think we have a lot of data there, but a very difficult space right now in terms of what we should do for these patients. I agree. One of the things that I wanted to also get your thoughts on is with these types of immune treatments, there's certainly potential for an immune-mediated adverse event. This is a spectrum of toxicity that we don't see with other classes of drugs. How do you proactively manage these immune-related adverse events in your day-to-day practice? I manage them carefully. The call for interacting and engaging with our subspecialist. It's a call for looking up how to grade these. I'll tell you, even as a lung cancer expert and somebody who gives immunotherapy in my clinics almost every week, we always want to grade these appropriately so we know how to manage them. I think there are a lot of different resources that can provide support on grading these immune-related adverse events and then managing them appropriately. And I think we could go on and on about all the different immune-related adverse events, but I think importantly, we need to grade them. We need to engage our subspecialists to help us. And then of course, when we're talking about things like instituting steroids or holding therapy, a lot will depend on grading them and partnerships with our subspecialists. And that's part of the proactive management that we have. Dr. Szynski, any additional insights in how you approach these at a high level or even day to day? I would offer similar comments. I think it's imperative that all oncologists, including oncology nurses, understand that this is a wide spectrum, pretty much any 
part of the body is at risk of an immune-related adverse events and very weird and uncommon rare things have occurred like myocarditis, type 1 diabetes, so on and so forth. You have to be vigilant. They typically occur early, but they can occur at any point in the management of the patient, sometimes even after discontinuation of the drug. It is something that needs vigilant attention over time, but I would echo your comments also. So Ben, this has been a fascinating conversation. Before we wrap it up, can you share one of your take-home messages for the audience? Don't be afraid to engage resources to help guide you on this, whether it be NCCN guidelines, whether it be subspecialists to help with management of adverse events, whether it be reaching out to an expert. The world in lung cancer has gotten exceptionally complicated and nuanced, and we certainly, even as experts, sometimes struggle with what to do, and it takes a village. I would say at a very high level, not hesitating to reach out to those resources or supports to help guide you in the management given all the competing strategies we have. And once again, this complexity is coupled with enthusiasm that in turn has led to better patient outcomes, but we're all in this together. So I would just make that point as we move forward. I completely agree. Unfortunately, Ben, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank you, Dr. Levy, for joining me today and sharing your valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Thank you, Dr. Sosinski. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com prova. Thank you for listening.